first day is Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus goes from the, t- the city of Jericho, walks all the way up the hill, about 20 miles, to the city of Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem. This is very important. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's what happens on Palm Sunday. He enters into Jerusalem, the victorious, triumphant entry. On Monday, Jesus enters Jerusalem again, and he clears out the temple. He kicks all of these people who are selling things that should not be selling in that way out of the temple. On Tuesday, he takes... Uh, he basically goes and debates with the chief priests. He gives a parable that says they're going to be condemned. And he has these really big debates with Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. He also gives something called the Olivet Discourses, which was, basically means that he's talking about the end of the world on the Mount of Olives. On Wednesday, on Wednesday the chief priests plot to kill Jesus. Jesus is anointed with perfume, and Judas plans to betray Jesus for money. On Thursday, Thursday is a packed day, the Last Supper happens. The Last Passover happens. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is arrested on the Mount of Olives. He's put on trial by the Jews, and Peter denies his Lord three times. Jesus stays up all night into the morning of Good Friday, where he's put on trial before Pilate. The Jews then choose not to save Jesus, but to choose, but choose to save Barabbas. Jesus is scourged, that means beaten with a whip. He's crucified, he dies on that cross, and he's buried. On Saturday, that's a Jewish Sabbath, nothing happens. Jesus is in the grave, dead. And on Resurrection Sunday, Sunday morning, early morning, Jesus rises from the dead, and Mary, Martha, uh, Salome, and I think other women also go to the tomb, and they see that the tomb is empty. They see the angels, and they run in fear. That's how the book of Mark goes. That's where we're going for the last eight days. Thank you for correcting me. Eight days of Jesus' life. We're going to spend, what, six chapters in it. Today, we're going to talk about just Palm Sunday, five days before Jesus would die. Take your Bibles with me and go to Mark chapter 11 now. Mark chapter 11. If you need a pen, there are also pens on the table, I think. Do you want this pen? Mark chapter 11, verse 1. I'll read for us and we'll pray. Verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. They told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, 
He went out to Bethany with twelve. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us so much detail about the most important week, not just of Jesus' life, but Lord of the whole history of the world. We thank you that he was crucified and risen from the dead. And we ask, Lord, that as we see this king, you help us to see his beauty and his glory and his majesty, that we would, Lord, love him because he loved us first. I thank you so much, Father, that we get to begin the passion narrative. We learn about Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection, Lord. I pray that you would change us because we see our Savior as he really is. I thank you so much, Lord, for everyone here. I pray that you bless us and help us that we would see Christ and love him as he deserves. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Expectations are crucial. When you go to your grandma's house, you don't expect to have to give your shoes and your bags to security guards to make sure you're not carrying a bomb, right? What? You don't expect to go through one of those x-ray machines and be scanned to make sure you don't have some like knife in your pocket. I mean, if your grandma actually required that to go to your house, you'd be shocked and confused and probably a little bit insulted too, right? Like, I'm not gonna hurt you, grandma. What are you doing? When you go to the airport, you don't expect to be welcomed by the other passengers with a warm hug and some cookies, right? You don't expect the captain to tuck you into bed and give you a kiss on the forehead. I mean, if they tried to do that, you'd be like, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> Not okay, right? Can you imagine that actually happened? No. Where someone's expectations were flipped in those situations? It'd be so weird, right? It'd be so confusing and disappointing and just not, not appropriate in any way. So expectations are crucial. They teach us how to act, what to say, what not to say, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. They control how we respond and define what we should do. So we all have expectations about pretty much everything. What do you expect for youth group and for church, for God, for Jesus? At church, you probably expect to hear a sermon and get some snacks afterwards. Right? So far, so good. At youth group, you probably expect to have small groups and to pray. Again, so far, so good. But what do you think happens when your expectations are wrong? And how would you even know if your expectations were wrong? I think we can actually expose a lot of wrong expectations by just asking one question. About one particular thing. What do you expect to happen when someone becomes a Christian? What do you expect to happen when someone becomes a Christian? If in your mind's eye you see like the clouds parting and the sun shining and you know there's like one single tear falling down someone's cheek as they lose their sins forever and they're never going to have any problems after that moment ever again. Um, I don't know. Do you expect the, the Disney happily ever after? Unicorns prancing and fairy pixie dust sprinkling everywhere. That's how a Christian's life will be. No, right? I mean, no one really believes that. It's kind of extreme. Shh. Listen up here. Listen up here. But I think most of us in America especially have this unspoken expectation that once someone becomes a Christian, life will be easier and happier and healthier. After all, we think to ourselves, God loves me, right? God loves me, so life should be good. We think, I'm forgiven, right? So sin shouldn't be a big deal anymore. We think, God, Jesus died for me, right? So I don't have to suffer. We expect Christian life to be full of rainbows and butterflies, for God to give us what we want, when we want it, how we want it, all the time. 
We expect our lives to be easy, triumphant, victorious, blessed, joyful. I mean, if you're a Christian, especially leaders, would you use only those words to describe the story of your life? Anyone? No. If you add words like suffering and difficult, heartbreaking, confusing, fearful, sinful, then yeah, I think that'd be closer to the big picture, to the real picture. If you expect your life to be perfect and happy just because you became a Christian, I guarantee you that you will, if you're not already, be disappointed. And maybe that's where you are. You've grown up in the church, went to children's ministry your whole life, you got a very cheery picture of what Christianity is supposed to be. But now, as you get older, you're wondering and you're wrestling because life's a lot harder than you thought it was. You're tired, you're stressed, you're confused, and you ask questions, maybe not to anyone else, just to yourself, like, how do you know the Bible is really true? Or, why are people Christians? Or, what's the difference between the stories I learned in the Bible and the fairy tales I used to read before bed? If, maybe the question is, am I Christian? And how can I be sure if I just keep on sinning? If God loves me, why are people mean to me? If God loves me, how come I'm so stressed at school? If Jesus died for me, why doesn't it feel like he really cares about me? Many people call themselves Christians for a while, but when life gets hard, the question in their mind is, is this the life God really promised? I mean, didn't Jesus say that he gave me peace and joy and forgiveness? Is this whole Christian thing just a lie? Just some made-up myth? Why are things so hard? Expectations are crucial, but they're only good expectations if they're based in truth. They're based in truth. You should not expect your grandma to check your bag for weapons. You should expect the TSA to do that at the airport. You should not expect a warm and loving hug from passengers at the airport, but you should expect a warm and loving hug from your grandma, and maybe some cookies to go along with it. These are right expectations, but where do we get these expectations from? And more importantly, how do we get the right expectations about Jesus? Do we get it from people on the internet? Or from our school friends? Or from strangers in our online video games? Maybe from our parents? Or from our youth leaders? Or even from a sermon that you're hearing in a youth group? Right? Where do the right expectations about Jesus really come from? They must come from God himself, as revealed in his word. Right expectations about Jesus come from God himself as revealed in his word. Our key idea today is our expectations of God must be built upon what God has said. Our expectations of God must be built upon what God has said. Look at point one. The king comes to Jerusalem. Verse one says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now I want to talk about Jerusalem for a little bit. Who's ever been to Jerusalem? Cool. Gonna be fun then. So Jerusalem is a very important city. Uh oh. Okay, cool. For context, we're in Torrance, right? Um, our church is like here, Lighthouse Community Church, right? Yeah, that's cool. Y'all know where we are, right? Okay. We'll zoom out to Torrance. Wait, what? Is our church literally near, like, a beer brewing company? Yeah, it is. Let's go. Okay, now let's say I know it's right. Zoom out. 
Sacramento is where I'm from. San Francisco is where I used to live. Um, other people are from Sacramento here too, I think. California, United States, okay? Big country. We're really, really small somewhere down there now. There's not more. Let's go across the ocean, across the Atlantic, to Europe, right? Here's Ukraine, which is being invaded. Uh, Russia is the one that attacked Ukraine. They share a border here. Israel is all the way here. This little itty-bitty country in the Mid Middle East on the border of the Mediterranean Sea. Right? Jerusalem is right here. What? All the way down. Okay? All of Jerusalem. This right here, which I will change to layers, is the Dome of the Rock. This is the Muslim, basically, worship center on top of the Temple Mount. Okay. Why is there a Muslim worship center in Jerusalem? That's a complicated question. I'll answer it afterwards. Okay. Now let's go down and see a picture. Here is a view of the city. There are people there. Right? There are people here. Right here, you see this golden thing? That's the Dome of the Rock. It's the Muslim worship center. Let me show you a better picture. This is from the same spot. In 2017, I got to visit Israel. And this is the same golden thing, right? You'll notice there's these big walls all the way along the side here, right? The walls go like this, and they continue this way. These walls are ancient. In fact, these, the perimeter of these walls goes all the way back to Jesus' day. All the way back. In fact, this, see this like, kind of like courtyard area where all the trees are? It's a big square. Um, we'll go back to here is this big square like this that basically we call the Temple Mount we think we're not sure but we think that this is actually the site of where the temple in Jerusalem during Jesus day was let me show you some scale okay <clears throat> this is one of the original rocks that was there when Jesus was in Jerusalem that's my friend right he's a pretty big dude he's taller than me he's bigger than me uh, this guy is probably more my size that's how big these rocks are, right? These are original to the first century when Herod built this temple for the Jews. Again, big dude, big rock, really big rock, okay? This is how high the walls currently are, but you notice that the, the big rocks down here are big. That was, okay, obviously. The small rocks up here, these are not ancient. These are not original. In fact, the Crusaders, which we'll talk about more, but the Crusaders about, uh, like, 1,000... 1200 AD, they built the walls upon the original ones, but these small rocks are not as ancient. Right? The walls we think actually used to be taller when Jesus was at the temple. In fact, the walls actually go a lot lower underground. It's just like got covered by like dirt and such, but big walls is what I'm saying. Okay, big walls. Yes, question? Is it possible to visit that weird golden dome? Yeah, yeah, I went inside. Or not, I went outside of it. You can't go inside unless you're a Muslim. I'm not a Muslim, so I can't go inside. But, yes. Because they don't want that. How did they take over? This is how tall the walls currently are, right? This guy here, he's taller than me. Um, this guy's about my height, but again, big walls, big temple, shiny. <laughs> this is Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, upon the same site that Jesus would have walked on. In fact, there's a gate right here that we think Jesus took from the Mount of Olives, where I took this picture, that he would walk down into the Kidron Valley and into the temple using that gate. I think we'll have one more picture. Okay, this is what we think the temple looked like when Jesus went into it. It's not real, 
it's at scale, or it's like a real like thing that they built, but it's like one one hundredth scale or something like that. So if you see, this is the same gate I was talking about right here that we think Jesus walked through. And you notice this entire courtyard is where the Jews would have worshipped. This building here, <clears throat> this big one right here, was what they would call the Holy of Holies. There's a very special box that used to be in the Holy of Holies. Anyone know what it is? It's the box that someone touched. The Ark of the Covenant was here, in the building, where God's presence dwelt. Again, this is a scale model. It's not exactly how it would have looked, but you get the picture. Huge walls, huge area, very impressive. Honestly, the most impressive thing probably any ancient person saw is this temple. Gilded in gold, took decades to build. Good question. No, we actually lost it. We have no idea where it is. Um, let me move on. I need to move on. Okay. This is Jerusalem. The point is that Jerusalem is a really important city. It's the center of Jewish worship because the temple's there, because the Ark of the Covenant is there. And I want you to know it's real. All right. We don't believe in fairy tales. Let's talk about fairy tales in church. This is real. We have a real God who entered our real world, who really walked around in a real city. And one day, the scriptures say, he will return to the same city, and he will reign forever and ever from this city. But before we talk about, or instead of focusing on that, today we're going to focus on his first coming to the city of Jerusalem, when he is basically announced as king. Let's look at verse 1 again. Verse 1 again. In the middle of verse 1, it says, Jesus sent two of his disciples. He said to them, go into the village opposite you, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied upon which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Jesus says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. So the disciples, they do that, right? They go to this, find this colt, and they're like, okay, like, we'll untie it. People are like, what are you doing? And they're like, the Lord has need of it. Um, we'll bring it back. Like, okay. And they take the colt, and they go and bring it to Jesus, right? This is like a really weird story. <laughs> really weird. Imagine the Saturday, you go to the park, you're biking around, and as you're enjoying, you know, a popsicle in the shade, all of a sudden some kid waltzes up to you and starts taking your bike. Like, peace, right? And you're like, oh, whoa, 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 like, what, are you, what are you doing? So, oh, sorry. Uh, Jesus told me to say to you, the Lord has need of it. What would you do? What would you do? If I was there, I'd be like, uh-huh. And the Lord also said that you should not steal. Give me my bike. <laughs> right? What's going on in Mark? Is, is Jesus saying, yeah, go steal this colt for me? Like, I just, I don't know, I'm, like, tired of walking. Like, this is, this is too much work, right? No, no. <laughs> What's going on? Let's keep going. Verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. We think those are palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This whole story about this cult and going into Jerusalem only makes sense in light of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. Can you turn there with me? Zechariah 9.9. If you can't find it, it's okay. Use the table of contents. Zechariah is spelled Z-E-C-H. 
It was. I had a plan. Ooh, that's that. I take that compliment. That's that's awesome. <laughs> All right, Zechariah nine nine. People find it? Yeah. Haven't found it yet. It's okay. No shame in using table of contents. The reason why it's there is because sometimes it's hard to find books, especially Zechariah. Like, I was struggling. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Very tiny. All right. Zechariah 9, 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foul of a donkey. I mean, did you catch it? This verse commands people in Jerusalem to say, to rejoice, to shout. Why? Because their king is coming mounted on a camel? No. On a car? No. On a donkey. Specifically, a, a foul of a donkey or a colt of a donkey, which means like a baby donkey. Zechariah was written around 520 B.C., 550 years before Christ would come into Jerusalem. God said that this is how his king would come into his city and set up his kingdom. And this is exactly what happened. Jesus took that cult, and the reason why he could take that cult is because he's the king who owns everything. Even this random cult in some city outside of Jerusalem. He did it because he's fulfilling the prophecy that God had written more than 500 years before. So unless you're Jesus, don't be stealing people's cults, okay? They're not yours, but they do belong to him. The kingly details in this chapter are everywhere. Look at verse 2. It says that no one, Jesus says to find a cult upon which no one has ever sat, right? Why? It's because this donkey is special. It's sacred. And because the king's donkey, only the king can sit on this donkey. Verse 3 says that Jesus, Jesus says in it, in verse 3, that the Lord has need of it because God owns all things as the king over everything. In verse 6, the disciples do exactly what Jesus said. And they say exactly what Jesus said to do. Just like a citizens, the citizens of a kingdom obey their king. In verse 7 and 9, the people put their cloaks on the donkey. That's kind of like, I don't know, like the equivalent of a saddle, right? For the donkey, but they also put their cloaks on the ground. For the donkey to walk on. Now that is weird. That is not what we would do in this culture. But basically, it's the ancient equivalent of a red carpet. Not for just some famous celebrity, but for the king of the world. In verse 9 to 10, the Jews walking before Jesus and the Jews walking after Jesus are proclaiming his name, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father, David. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us. But it's kind of like the equivalent of saying, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. They proclaim the coming of the king into his city to establish his glorious kingdom. So Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill this prophecy. Now please turn to me to Isaiah chapter 9. And while you're turning there, we must remember that the entire Old Testament actually points to this coming king. For thousands of years, God has been preparing his people, the Jews, 
for the coming of this king, to get ready for him, to be excited for him, to see what he would do for them. Isaiah chapter 9. 9 verse 6. Can I help you, Nathan? All right. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to behold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We know this verse from Christmas. But if you're a Jew, and you're watching Jesus come into the city on a donkey, you're thinking, Zechariah 9.9, Isaiah 9.6, like, what is this guy doing? Wait, wait, wait. Is he the king? Is he the king? You see him coming into Jerusalem. What do you expect to happen next? Just think with me. What do you expect to happen next? Put it in your mind. Again, you see this royal procession, Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, coming into Jerusalem. What do you expect is going to happen? Second point, the king leaves Jerusalem. Verse 11 says, he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. When he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So what happens when the conquering king of the whole world comes into Jerusalem? What happens when the Son of God, the king of Israel, comes into his city? What happens when the long-awaited Messiah, the one prophesied in the whole Old Testament, comes into his temple? Nothing. Nothing happens. He looks around and then goes home. (laughs) Good grief, what's going on? Right? We expect triumph and victory and glory and him, I don't know, having a great throne and winning. I really thought that would be guards. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. He walks out of Jerusalem, goes to a town called Bethany, which is a couple miles away, and stays with some friends for the night. No kingdom, no victory, no triumph. Our expectations are shattered. So it gives. Do you remember the disciples, particularly James and John? They go up to Jesus in Mark 10, and they say, Jesus, we want to ask you, no, we want you to do whatever we want you to do for us. We want you to do what we ask of you. You guys remember that? They asked to sit at his right and at his left when he comes in his glory. Namely, when he sits on his throne, we want to be number two and number three. That's what they wanted. They expected him to be the Messiah, the conquering king, who would free Israel from the bondage of the Romans. Was that the right expectation? No, it was not. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 10, 33, just before this? He said to them, see, look, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over, that means betrayed, into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. 
This is the third time Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. But they couldn't understand it. They couldn't accept it. How could the king die? How could the Messiah fail? How could God's promises not be true? Let's say I came up to you after small group tonight. I said, hey, um, you know, grandparents make really good cookies. And since you're going to be a grandparent, um, can you make me some cookies? You'd be like, you'd be like, what? I'm a middle schooler. Like, you're weird, Keith, right? Uh, what, are you, what are you talking about? Okay. So if I said that to you, I'm missing something very important. I'm missing who you are right now. I'm missing your mission is not to be a grandparent, but I just want you to be what I want you to be so I can get what I want. Right? Instead of seeing you for the middle school that you are, I'm looking past that and saying, no, I want you to actually be a grandparent. And maybe one day you all be, will be grandparents, and I'll come ask you guys for cookies because grandparents make the best cookies. And it'll be awesome, right? But, but if I'm still alive, this is true. But I'm missing you for who you are now. You'd be confused. You'd be like, I thought we all were on the same page. I'm youth group, I'm not a grandpa. That's kind of, it's a lame example, but it's kind of what the disciples are doing with Jesus. He said, I'm going to die in three days. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. This is how it's going to happen, guys. And they're like, yeah, what about when you come in your glory, Jesus? Can we, can we get that? Can we sit at your right and your left? Can you glorify us when you become the king? Their expectation was that he would be a king without a cross. That he would be a sovereign without suffering. That he would be Messiah without fulfilling his mission to come and to die as a ransom for many. Their expectations were wrong. Jesus will be king, but not yet. First the cross, then the crown. So let's bring it home to you and to me. What do you expect of Jesus? What do you expect of Jesus? I think new believers often expect a lot from Jesus. They expect life and hope and peace and joy and forgiveness, victory over sin. And those are all good and true and biblical expectations. But that picture is not complete. In Mark 8, Jesus did this. He called the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, you remember? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you would follow me, here's your expectation. You should expect to be crucified. If you would follow me, here's your expectation. You should expect to suffer and die like me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. See, Jesus didn't lie. He didn't give only the pretty part of the picture. He gave the whole picture. He said, if you want to follow me, you'll suffer. You might even die. It'll be painful. Welcome to the Christian life. But he also said, if you follow me, here's our expectation. You should expect to get me. And if you get Jesus, you get everything. We've sung this song many times at Lighthouse, but let me just read it for you. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. 
I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. Why? Because he's fairer, he's better, he's more beautiful than the lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. More than to be the king of a vast domain or be, to be held in sin's dread sway, I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords today. What's your expectation of Jesus? Is it this? That you'll lose everything, but you'll gain everything because you get him? If you trust him, you should expect him to forgive you for your sins. Not just the first time you believe, but every single time you continue to come and confess to him. If you trust him, you should expect him to love you in the best things and even in the hardest things of your life. Because those things he's using for his glory and even your good. If you trust him, you should expect him to be your greatest friend who will never forsake you, who will never leave you, who will never fail you. Because that's who he is to his people. If you trust Jesus, you should expect him to be committed to your happiness, which means that he will be relentless in the pursuit of your holiness. You should expect him to carry you, to keep you, to protect you, to save you, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, but all the way home to heaven. You should expect him to hear every single one of your prayers. And always to answer, not according to your will, but according to his perfect will. You should, expect him, you should expect him to be your God and for him to call you son or to call you daughter because you're his forever. This is the Jesus that commands us to believe in him, who says, repent, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel. What are your expectations of Jesus? Are they good? Are they true? If they are, then you would come to him and believe in him for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is a mighty Savior who came as king, but not as the king as we would make in our image, but as a king, Lord, that you promised. The king who would suffer and die, not for his own sins, for he had none, but for ours, Lord for our hatred, for our rebellion, for our wrong expectations, where he came and died. And three days later, just as he promised, he rose again from the dead. We thank you, Lord, that you are a real God who came to deal with real problems, our sin. And the Lord, you are really our Savior. I thank you so much, Father, that Christ is alive today, that he's well, that he's seated at your right hand, that even now he is praying for his people. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would save your own, that you lose not one, that you love us all the way home. It's in your perfect name we pray. Amen.